Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to Real Skiers with Jackson Hogan. Hi, Gregory. Hello, Jackson. Dear listeners, I'm on the phone, of course, with the great Gregory Stump, the auteur of Blizzard of Oz and many other epic films that virtually laid the groundwork for ski filmmaking that was to follow. And in our backstory that we've been revealing in episodes one, two, and three, we'd reached the point where Blizzard of Oz is about to break onto the movie scene. Now, to add a little context and to put context in this whole story for my dear listeners, what film was it that preceded Blizzard? And in what way did your body of work prior to Blizzard change? And in what ways did those changes help make Blizzard a better film than all that came before? Well, Blizzard was my fifth movie in five years. I mean, that in itself is pretty pretty cool because, you know, we weren't a big company. It was me, uh, Bruce Benedict, as the two photographers. And then I had a guy named Carl Labby who came in during Maltese Flamingo, which was my third movie, to help with marketing. And so really it was a, th- it was a three-person company, and that was it. So we there was no team other than that. And then, so Blizzard was my fifth movie in five years. So we had the droids, Time Witch for Snowman, Maltese Flamingo, Good the Rad the Gnarly, and then Blizzard of Oz. Uh, but the big difference for me creatively in making Blizzard of Oz was that for the first time, I had an offline edit system at home. And what that means, uh, dear listeners, is that my first four movies, because I was a radio DJ, I produced the entire soundtrack to the film, the narration, the everything. You know, every piece of audio of the film was created in a radio studio on quarter-inch radio tape that I then applied to a video master, and then I just stuck pictures to it. So there was no cut and paste. If there was a sequence that wasn't working in the middle of the movie, I couldn't take it out. I had to discover a way to make it work to the best that I could because there was there was no option. Whereas with Blizzard, having an offline system, that meant that I could, I think I made 20 different edits of Blizzard of Oz, each one that I thought was perfect. But I, I got to show these edits to my friends back in Maine. One friend in particular who was, had a master's degree in, in, in botany, and he was just an excellent scientific thesis writer. And he, you know, just berated me and bludgeoned me with, Greg, this movie is about those three guys, Mike Hattrop, Glenn Plake, and Scott Schmidt, skiing these crazy places in Squaw and Chamonix. It's about those three guys and extreme skiing and anything else where you deviate, cucka, cut it, you know, <laughs> you know, and because I, I, I was telling you earlier, I, I had a, you know, I had a kid's, little kid's happy, happy, happy sequence at like this place at Beaver Creek, actually. So it was this very elaborate, you know, kid's ski school. And it was a great segment, just not in Blizzard of Oz. In the 30th anniversary version of Blizzard of Oz, I actually cut out two of the things that had been bothering me. Because I did leave a couple of goofy things in there that I think detracted from the overall movie, and that was uh, Wheel of Destruction. You know, that was a a big mistake. I had Cookie the Swede, and it was, you know, it was funny. Would you put the Wheel of Destruction story in context for our listeners to give them a little flavor of what it was and why it didn't fit? 
Well, f- first of all, I took a, you know, for me, it was like the wheel of fortune. It's a wheel of destruction. All right. Uh, how are you? Okay. Our first contestant today is Cookie the Swede. And this guy talked a big game in Chamonix about what a great snowboarder he was. And it turned out he, he was terrible. So, I, you know, him wiping out. Very good. I basically used it as the excuse for a crash sequence. So we love this. Well, everybody likes crash sequences. Well, That's- they do. But these were all snowboarding crashes. So snowboarders <sighs> took a little offense. That- How day class say? Yeah. Plus, you know, here you have this intense movie, Blizzard of Oz, just rolling on like a steam train, like a locomotive. And then, boom, you know, coitus interruptus with, you know, wheel of destruction. It just, it just didn't fit. Um, but... I did take that on for the 30th anniversary, but for by and large, for the most part, all generalizations are false. No, <laughs> by and large, for the most part, which is what makes them so true. <laughs> yes, it was just a huge, huge difference to be able to do a an offline edit now. And I'm these were still analog edits, so it's not like we were up to the computer phase. Oh. But if, you, if I may interrupt, so that tells us about the, the gave you a great advantage in storytelling and your editing. But I would say if there was one thing that stood out to your followers about Blizzard, editing is going to be blotted out by another word called music. <laughs> well, and that, but they went happen? hand in hand. They were without one, there wouldn't be the other. Ah, you know, they were extrapolate, please. Well, Tell us about the music. You know, well, the music came out of uh, ZTT Studios. In England, that's ZTT, Zang Tum Tum, which was Trevor Horn and Jill Sinclair's highly successful English studios. I mean, they produced ABC, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Seal. It's said that Trevor Horn invented the 80s musically. And so it was a huge deal for me to ingratiate myself with these people because it was, they let me use the stuff for nothing. I mean, I had to pay the very minimum for publishing for for music but i mean that's a thousand dollars compared to if warren miller had gone to ztt it would have been a hundred thousand per track i had this absolutely cutting edge music that trevor was doing with his band's act propaganda frankie goes to hollywood uh, and i'd gone to london and they just loaded me up with cassettes and albums i mean i had this huge huge bag filled with music that they gave me but they gave it to me on one condition they said and this was Liam, the Irish henchman that worked for them. He said, Stumpy, my boy, you can have all of our music for free on one condition and one condition only. That the movie's fantastic. Because if it isn't, it won't see the light of day. And he meant it. Um, it won't see the light of day. <laughs> yeah. If, if, yeah. If it's anything less than fantastic, it won't see the light of day. Because, you know, you, you don't have a contract with us. We've given you a bunch of music that you can use in the ski movie as long as the ski movie's great. Anything less, and the, there's no deal. And, you know, needless to say, they were, you know, doing cartwheels over the final product. Uh, but that, that music also lent uh, a big a big part, you know, because one of the main characters in the movie isn't a human, it's a place, Chamonix. So this European Euro dance tech, early dance EDM music really suited going to Europe. And Trevor even told me, and so many people had 
so many different interpretations of what I was doing. Trevor Horn, and this is the producer of the music, he told me that to him it was like the old world getting rescued by the, the new world, the old world being Europe, getting rescued by these three young Americans. And I never thought of that, ever. But that was what he got out of the movie. So the music was really important. And, of course, the editing was equally important as, as the music. But the ability to do practice rounds, offline edits, that I could go back and show to people. I know I did this from watching my father in the, in the theater, doing musical theater, because the second the audience started talking or, or starting to pay attention, he knew that was something that had to get trimmed and had to go. And so that, that was the thing. Anybody starts telling their ski stories in the middle of my ski movie, that segment's not strong enough. And I need to retool that and rework it into something that holds their attention. We don't, have, we don't want no stinking talking during the movie, do we, Jackson? No, sir. And if I may be so bold to reiterate, so Blizzard was different from its predecessors in the, your flexibility in your editing and the impact of music, which was tied to, in fact, this new freedom to do edit as you like. But if there was another third ingredient without which you, you couldn't have baked this particular loaf, it would be the personalities of your stars. In Mike Hattrip and Scott Schmidt and in Glenn Plake, you found a somehow magical amalgam that has remained a trio in the public's mind ever since. I mean, I think of just that accomplishment is kind of weird. <laughs> well, it, other... it is. And the fact is, Glenn was not in Europe at first. I didn't want him around because he was, at that point, you know, he's doing drugs and he's drinking like a fish. And I, I didn't want to have the ugly American in Europe on my watch. Uh, yes. <laughs> you know, because I, I just, I, you know, I'd spent enough time way before I was making ski movies. You know, I went to school in England for a semester and I did two different uh, uh, collegiate touring shows. So I'd spent a lot of time in London and Winchester in the south of England. You know, I did the backpack around Europe and all that um, as a college student. But I was very aware of the ugly American. I mean, I, I used to wear a Canadian patch on my backpack. In Europe, because you got much nicer treatment than if you had an American flag. People didn't, they weren't so pleased with us Yanks. Tell me a little bit about your recruitment of the big three. Scott Schmidt was already an established star. He had been in several Warren Miller features. I'm sure you could remember the titles better than I. So he was already up there in the firmament of skiers you'd, you'd love to have in your film. Talk to me about who recommended Hat Trip and how did you end up with Plake in the whole process? Well, Scott, of course. Scott's first Warren Miller movie was Ski Time, which ironically I'm in too. Much different sequences. I'm skiing baby bumps at Snow Valley where he's flying off the Palisades. But he'd been in every Warren Miller film since, so that would be five films. So, yeah, we, you know, we, we used to fantasize, oh, God, would, can you imagine we get Scott Schmidt in our movie? And that's what you know, Scott Kennett and my brother, we, don't, that we just fantasized about getting Scott. I don't even remember bugging him at ski shows, but he says that I was pretty relentless. And only when I had budget so that he could go to Chamonix for two months for free. Ski, eat, lodging, all covered. So that's what, why he did it. Because even after we'd shot the movie, he didn't think there was enough footage to make anything good out of it. Whereas I did. And when I got back, to 
Maine from France, I sat down with my best friend, David Ferrer, and I mapped out exactly how the movie was to be put together in case something happened to me. I was that confident with what I had for Blizzard of Oz. With Mike, that was a recommend from my brother who had competed in moguls with him. And actually the same thing with Glenn. Jeff had seen both these guys on the bump circuit, the amateur bump circuit in World Cup. Mike knew more about Glenn than my brother did. Glenn was in Maltese Flamingo a little bit. He's still really good in it. Not in uh, Good the Red, not only because he was injured that year. He'd broken his femur. So he was out that whole season. And then we'd, we'd shot him at Squaw, which is actually Bruce Benedict. I was even at Squaw for that Squaw Valley shootout sequence. And so Glenn appeared in that and blew everybody away. But there's another funny thing. Like, I wasn't even there. But I had this piece of music from Trevor that I had been hanging on to for a couple of years. It was the soundtrack to that shootout. So I just invented the whole premise that these guys were trying out for a dream job. They weren't. It was a single-day shoot that just happened to go really, really well. But I turned it into the Squabbly shootout and added the music and the narration and devised the premise that there was some sort of competition between them, which was not the case. Well, in fact, Plake wouldn't have made the movie if Lynn Weiland doesn't get hurt. Exactly. First day of shooting in Chamonix. She goes flying off this cat track. Boy, that's a sound you don't ever forget. So when she hit, it broke her back and thankfully was not paralyzed. And she should have been. Everybody else that broke what she broke, they didn't walk again. But miraculously, Lynn did. But with Lynn injured, you know, it's just Mike and Scott and everybody. Bruce Benedict and Carl Labby are just beating it to me. And, you know, Bruce is there in Chamonix. Like, Greg, Glenn. Glenn, 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 Hattrop, same thing. Glenn, get Glenn over here, you, you dummy. You know, <laughs> but again, I, I dealt with them enough. The Maltese Flamingo premiere, I, I just bought a condo, my very first home purchase of my life, brand new, beautiful white Berber carpet. And Glenn got so drunk at the premiere party that he passed out in these orange bad boy club pants on my floor and pissed himself. It leaves this huge orange zipper stain, like belt loops. It was as if Banksy had spray painted it on my floor. Oh, delightful Oh, image. it was. So, you know, again, I, I just did not want to deal with Glenn. I was the only one that didn't want him there. So they, they talked me into it. Sure enough, we pick up Glenn at the airport, and he was in the middle five rows of whatever, the 737, 727, whatever, airplane. And he had a boom box. <laughs> like with no headphones <laughs> charming everyone charming they all moved around him and so he got the whole row to himself which was his mo he's playing guns and roses and at that time nobody'd heard of guns and roses and that was another thing with glenn and it applies to him to this day is he's very very ahead of his time with really hard music you know punk rock and, and at the time you know guns and roses i mean that was pretty ferocious stuff when it came out so he arrives with his boombox Oh, my God. You know, the drinking, it's just full bore. By the way, Jackson, one of the surefire ways, if you're having bad weather on a ski movie shoot, get everybody loaded the night uh, that night and when it's not supposed to clear up, and you'll wake up to a bluebird day every time. Because <laughs> that was the case. That's why you hire professionals. <laughs> right. Glenn was just amazing on skis, and 
there's not when you look at Blizzard of Oz and there's not that much footage of Glenn doing anything extreme. There's really only a couple extreme shots in that movie, whereas the rest of it, and in particular with Glenn and Mike, they're bump skiing the Grand Monte and ripping it in real time. Part of the reason I blew my, my back out eventually is because unlike Warren Miller or any of the other ski film people, I lugged around an Aeroflex SR2, which was crystal synced. So the real time was 23.97 frames per second, period, consistently. So my real time transferred perfectly to video as real time, whereas with the older cameras and the wind-up cameras, you didn't know if you were getting 21 frames a second or 27 frames a second, whereas with this thing, you knew. And it was much, much heavier, and it came with batteries and 400-foot cakes of film that you have to load in a black bag with your bare hands on the side of you know the Alps. So I maintain that we lugged around much more cinematic equipment. And I remember Gary Nate and Brian Sisselman, when the first time they saw me with an SR, they're like, oh, man, Stump's got an SR? Because they were expensive. They're $25,000 just for the body. But I was out there with absolute state-of-the-art film gear. You look at Blizzard of Oz, and it's more bump skiing of Glenn and Mike than there is cliff jumping, by far. So... Blizzard is a huge hit, boosted in no small degree by the appearance on the Today Show of, of Scott and Glenn. Which was four um, months after the movie it, was released in October. It certainly stuck in the public mind. Oh, yeah, mind. But I'm just saying that's how quick it was. To go from obscurity to the Today Show in just four quick months after that Blizzard was released, that in itself is impossible. You, the only other skier that was ever on the Today Show was, was Warren. And that was years earlier. Yeah, quite the coup. Quite aside from its popularity and its you know, eternal placement now in the pantheon of great ski movies of all time, was it your personal favorite? It was when I made it. At the time, it, it was, but it got so big, so quick, and I had to see it so many times, I started getting really embarrassed of my narration, which people say is great, but I listen to it, and I, I hear a 27-year-old asshole spouting off. You know, cool. I mean, my, my French pronunciations are, you know, I just butcher things. And I say them so confidently, like the couloir. Yeah, right. The, what do you say? The Kool-Aid? You know, I just, I, I was so embarrassed by that narration that that's why there's no narration in the following film, License to Thrill. I don't narrate that movie. The skiers narrate it, which was also the start of more so than Blizzard with, you know, what everybody does now is they have the skiers talk. But license was the, then you know, MTV Sports. That never would have existed without license to throw, probably. And again, I'm working with Trevor Horn's ZTT Music. But this time, I actually got to go to London after the movie was a final cut. And we remixed the songs, taking out lyrics where my narrative drops would go. That was a whole new level of working with Trevor's music. Because we took the, their existing tracks, yanked out the singers, in some cases, in, in a lot of cases, where there was a verse, we took that out. I pasted the skiers talking, fill those musical holes. And it, it made a really powerful film. And I, I mean, I think License is better than Blizzard. And then I got a little cocky, probably started smoking too much dope. And I made Dr. Strangeglove, which was a resounding flop when it came out. To every arc, there is the other side of the parabola. Yeah. But that wasn't the alarm bell that said it's time to quit. When did you say, I, I can't stay in this racket? Well, that happened 
when we were filming Siberia, and that was 1995. But after Dr. Strangelove, I'd moved to Whistler, and I would do one more film in a row. So The Groove Requiem and The Key of Ski became my, what, seventh film in a row? And then after that, living in Whistler, and I just, I said, screw this. By that point, I was commuting to Los Angeles and directing commercials down there. And I mean, I directed a Super Bowl commercial for Disney starring Tony Hawk. I mean, it doesn't get bigger for sports-oriented commercial. So I was doing very well in, in Hollywood and making, you know, I'd make enough money in, on one commercial. I'd go back to Whistler and ski the whole winter. And I finally got to go skiing, you know, because Whistler Blackham, they were so nice to me. They gave me two dual mountain season passes for a decade. So my girlfriend, she got a free season pass. And then I had once finally got to ski all the time. And then 94, I made a P-Tex Lies and Duct Tape which is quite good as well. And I narrate that. And I also narrate Groovy. And I got back into the narration, but I I took a, you know, especially with Groove, I took a very detached style because I used the first Gulf War as the timeline, which was a very dangerous, risky thing to do because, you know, you're introducing a war, a real war, into the timeline of a ski movie. My narration, it's it, I walked that fine line down the tightrope without committing to either side politically. It, it worked as a great timeline. But then I was just skiing every day and eventually snowboarding every day at, at Whistler. And we lived in the Creekside, so it was before the Creekside was developed. They had all these new lifts down there. If I was snowboarding in soft boots, I'd just walk to the lift. Ski boots, I'd take the free bus for the five-minute bus ride. But it was great because I, you know, I finally got to ski or you know, snowboard every day. And I was doing 140 powder days a year. Did you create, by the way, border cross or skier cross? Uh, border cross. It was not my idea. It was Steve Rechschaffner's idea, who was my original sponsor at Swatch. And Steve was just always ahead of his time. It was his concept. And Sean Palmer will argue this point until he's blue in the face that he invented the concept. But he, he didn't. Steve did. And then my marketing guy at the time, John Graham up in Canada, Steve was explaining his uh, the idea to, to John and said, you know, it's kind of a combination between snowboarding and, and you know, uh, motocross. And, and John goes, you mean like border cross? And we all just looked at each other. And we're like, yeah, a lot like border cross. So he came up with the name. I didn't come up with the concept. I didn't come up with the name. But I did film it and put it into a sequence that explained what it was. And from there, it became an Olympic sport. So you were like the godfather. Well... No, I would say Steve was the godfather. Graham came up with the name. What was I? I was just a soldier. I, I filmed it and put the edit together and found the music. And I did the creative on the film. I did the film production side of it. But I by no means gotcha. invented it. Although it was the first one. <laughs> Getting back to your Hollywood connection. You, you haven't dropped all the names that, <laughs> that we could drop on our dear listeners. You ended up working with Seal and with Willie Nelson. You mentioned, of course, your Tony Hawk commercial, which is no mean feat, because you also got Tony Hawk to do a complete, or somehow it ended up in the uh, mini-movie that the commercial is. He does a complete 360 loop. So he had attempted that before. Same thing with the 900. We built $100,000 with the ramps for that commercial. The loop he had tried to do for a couple of commercials, I think it was maybe for Aqua Velva or something like that. He had tried to do them before, but the problem is, when he, once he gets warmed up, because he warms up falling on his head, these airbags, 
And at one point, the warm-up on, on our shoot, he, he missed the airbag. And, oh, you could hear a pin drop because there's Tony, all six foot whatever of him, falling onto the pavement, on his head, warming up. He had told me that that, that morning because I knocked on his trailer at like 4.30 in the morning. And I'm like, hey, Tony, I don't know if you remember me. He goes, oh, I totally remember you because we had shot some stuff for Swatch back in 85. And the Super Bowl commercial was 2000. So, you know, he totally remembered me. And I said, is there anything I need to know about what we're going to do today? And he goes, yeah, there's just one thing. Once I get warmed up, you can't give me that Hollywood five minutes where it takes 45 minutes for you guys to move all your crap around. He goes, once I'm warmed up, I can't let me, I can't wait more than two, three minutes or I'll lose the feel and I'll start missing both the 900 and the, you know, and the loop. And so we did the loop the first day and got that in the can. And the second I had let down my guard on the shoot, cause I knew we had it, you know, I got five 35 millimeter cameras and, you know, it's a total full on Super Bowl shoot. I'm sitting in video village. They call it. It's a tent where I see the five television monitors from within the film cameras. So I knew we had, it. I knew we had it in the can. I let down my guard for one second. Sure enough, the assistant director jumps in and goes, okay, I'd like to try it one more time from this angle. And Tony's looking at me like, who the fuck is this guy? What? Huh? And I'm like, okay, you can do that. But you've got five minutes because Tony Hawk is not waiting more than five minutes for you guys to get set up. So chop, chop, or it's not happening. And they did. They, they moved quickly. You know, another interesting thing on that shoot was the 900 because we built this huge ramp, but we painted it so it looked like a construction zone. So there was black and yellow do not cross paint on the ramp. And Tony was landing, and the paint still had just enough tackiness to it, so he was wiping out every time. And he's he's like, "Greg, we got to flip the masonite just in the the one spot I'm landing." And so I had to frame out of that, but the the paint was tacky. And there was the funniest thing is we had a lunch break, and I'm like, "Fuck it, I I can't eat lunch." So I'm out there with a drill. I'm going to flip the masonite if nobody's going to help me because it's lunch break, and you know, union shoots lunch breaks is lunch break. But you know what? My crew by that point was having so much fun and they were being treated with respect by the director, not looked down upon as was so often the case in these Hollywood situations where the director's, you know, just a God that they started noticing that I was working during lunch break, flipping the Masonite. And next thing I know, I got five teamsters helping me and we get it done. And they're like, yeah, cool. And also at the end of that shoot, I took my whole crew out for a party, right? I spent $8,000 in a bar. <laughs> I did, Good for you. Know, you. All these, all these teamster guys, they, they go, you know what? I haven't had a director take me out for drinks after shoot for 15 years. They were psyched. And, you know, I found that's, that's the only way to operate in, in these situations is you, you are an equal. They're all working together. The director's not a God. They're not even close. I'm a ballet skier from Maine. <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> a ballet skier from Maine who is now in a, a different phase in your life. You've been renovating a house in Oregon now for almost as long as Oregon's been a state. <laughs> well, no, that, they've been a state in 18, 1859, so it's a bit longer than that. But it's not just a house. There's two places. The, the first place, I mean, you haven't seen it, but it was condemned. There was a lot to do. We're now kind of in the high-speed phase where flooring's coming in and you know kitchen cabinets and all that. But then I've got another building downtown that was a title company. So there's a walk-in vault, which is soundproof. What would I do with a soundproof room, huh? Turning it in, into my audio studio. So I'm doing, I've got two projects going on. And we managed to do that Blizzard of Oz 30th tour. Staying productive while really doing nothing. 
Well, you've fashioned a bit of a radio program prototype yes. that, if adopted worldwide, would, of course, restore you to your prior eminence in the entire field of No, and it's really interesting because as you're doing now, it's going to be a podcast. So, you know, the market's global. The overhead is minimal. You know, I, I enjoy doing it. I love music and I like mixing music. You know, most radio stations now, the art of the segue doesn't exist because it's automated. And the two songs that couldn't go together more poorly uh, get placed together, then they don't mix. And, you know, so whereas I'm, I'm really doing like this two-hour mashup, it, it's, you know, it's kind of like a two-hour movie. If you can hear that little squeaky sound in the background, that's my sound engineer telling me that time is up for this episode, that we've pretty much brought things full circle. We've explored the whole development of Blizzard and what made Blizzard of Oz an epical film and what separated it in, the, in your total body of work and how, where it stands in the overall arc of your career, if you will. I want to thank you so much for being the very first guest for Jackson Explains Everything About Skiing. I think we've certainly explained a great deal about <laughs> the life of one Gregory Stump. I can't thank you enough for sharing Yeah, no this problem, and I, I wish you the best of luck, and I can't wait for you to have Jean-Claude Keely on. Moi aussi. <laughs> Et au revoir. Goodbye, dear listeners, until the next episode. This has been Real Skiers with Jackson Hogan. Thanks for listening.